Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 12th of May, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Well, the uh, Queen has appeared, Mike. Uh, she has, yes. Uh, so let's just have a, a brief look at, at this. This is her being led into uh, the House of Lords yesterday uh, by Prince Charles, of course. It was the state opening of Parliament. Um, this is the beginning of a new parliamentary session, so a new school year. Um, and of course, they recently, in recent years, have been running this just a few weeks before they break up for the summer holidays, and they take pretty much the same kinds of summer holidays as the school as the schools do, about six weeks or something. So there's not much going to be done between now and September. But nonetheless, uh, this is kind of important because it sets out the government's agenda for the next year. Uh, and there is some interesting stuff in that. But I did find it hilarious as they walked uh, single file, masked. Uh, usually there's 650 of them piling into the House of Lords for this. But yesterday it was about 50 at most. It's very different than the Brit Awards, Mike. Oh, you, I mean, it's got a similar style to it, but there are some differences in that they're socially distant and looking very sinister. I mean, is this supposed to be humanity at work? This is some pretty perverted ritual, I think, they're indulging in. I, I think that's right. So you had to be uh, uh, carefully selected uh, to, to attend. But of course, uh, we've got to remember that the theme was uh, a Queen's speech to build back better. It's branded with a nice... I have horsey kind of cue there. Uh, very, very interesting. This is what it's about. Uh, so the question is, who wrote this speech? Uh, it was hilarious listening to the Queen as she talked about levelling up opportunities. Across. I mean, this is not queenly language. This is uh, modern newspeak, political newspeak uh, that she's been forced well, to say. Corporatized. It's the corporatised Queen. Yes. The corporatised language. Um, so they produced a, a nice little uh, video for them to... Uh, uh, promote this thing with. This is this 1.6 billion pounds that the government is spending on uh, on PR at the moment. Um, and we're seeing the benefits of it with uh, all kinds of propaganda coming out and a whole range of graphics uh, to go along with this. So we're just going to run a few through a few of them now and, uh, and explain exactly what... Uh, it's good, isn't it? It's appalling. I'm, I'm glad I'm off camera at the moment, Mike, because my face is wincing at, at just... I have to use the dross word, I think. Yes. Well, let's have a look at uh, the main theme. So the main theme is beating COVID and backing the NHS, of course. Um, and uh, so the government is going to address the impact of the pandemic on mental health and well-being. And of course, the impact on mental health and well-being wasn't caused by the pandemic. It was caused by the policy that the government implemented. So they break down your mental health first. And then what? They rebuild you in the in the yeah, their <laughs> vision for the future. Is that how it works? Uh, but they're going to tackle obesity, apparently. So this is fantastic. They're going to make healthier choices easier and fairer, despite the fact that they have uh, closed uh, most of I mean, They've got a nice image there of people uh, taking part in uh, karate or, or kickboxing or some other kind of activity there. But of course, they haven't been, we haven't been allowed to do that for the last uh, 14 months. So, so uh, but that they're going to tackle uh, obesity. But the main theme here was building back greener, building a greener, a cleaner and greener UK is uh, what it's all about. And of course, we've been making the point that uh, COVID is very much uh, leading into this. And we'll explain why in just one second. So uh, more nice graphics here, setting green targets, restoring nature, tackling air pollution, cutting plastic use, more masks, more plastic, but we're going to cut plastic use and revolution, revolutionizing how we recycle. 
Yes, but everywhere I go, and we have still been able to travel a bit around the UK, essential journeys, of course, uh, they're cutting down trees. Um, we've only got to go down the road from the studio, Mike, to see really excellent uh, tree slaughter yes. as the new road goes in. Indeed, that was a bit of sarcasm there, by the way. That yes, the oh, sorry. Uh, well, Correct. it's irony. We're not allowed to be yes. sarcastic. That's true. Uh, okay, and uh, so, you know, what is what is going on here? Well, to understand what's going on, we've got to go back to 2019. This, I think, was July 2019. Uh, reducing UK emissions, 2019 progress report to Parliament. This was from uh, the... Uh, Committee on Climate Change, which is supposedly independent, but nonetheless, uh, we'll see how independent it is, it is in a second. Uh, and this report said it finds that UK action to curb greenhouse gas emissions is lagging behind what is needed to meet legally binding emissions targets. Since June 2018, the government has delivered only one of 25 critical policies needed to get emissions, uh, emissions reductions back on track. But this was the key point. Rising to the challenge of net zero scenarios will require major progress in all sectors and for behavioral shifts to play a much greater role. In other words, what this uh, report was saying in the middle of 2019 was that unless some event came along uh, which was going to cause these behavioral shifts, the government was not going to meet its targets on the green, uh, on the, the net zero uh, policy. Okay. So uh, this was what they said. And lo and behold, six months later, COVID-19 comes along and we have seen the behavioural shifts required uh, to take us in that direction. So the question is, who wrote this report? Well, as I say, it was published, uh, it, was, it was commissioned by the uh, Committee for Climate Change. Um, but guess what? It was written by Imperial College London. Uh, yeah. That shouldn't come as any surprise for anybody because Imperial College London has been running the COVID uh, campaign since the beginning. Yeah, and that'll bring you very quickly to a link into the Bill Gates uh, empire and influence. Uh, but everywhere you see behavioural shift, what is actually being talked about is the government's use of uh, applied psychology in a political sense to change the way we think. And of course, the British government boasted back in 2010 that it could change the way we thought and thus the way we behave. And most people, the majority of people, wouldn't even be aware of that. Um, so let's come right up to date uh, with Alex Sharma, who was giving an address on the second day of the, the Met Office Scientific Conference 2021 yesterday. This was entitled Science for a Resilient Future. And this was all about the vital role of science in tackling climate change. And this is what he said uh, during his speech. And I'm absolutely delighted that the UK Chief Scientific Advisor, Sir Patrick Vallance, has accepted my invitation to be the Chief Scientific Advisor for COP26. So again, we have a connection between the COVID narrative and the climate change narrative. This is very, very clear. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the other thing that's very clear, by the way, of course, is that many of the sort of scientific principles and so-called science that has been done over COVID-19 these are the same types of modeling that were done, have been done over climate change, and we're seeing the same types of policy directions as a result. Um, Could we just interject a bit there? For, for, for Alex, um, we've got this nepotistic organization running the country. I think it's becoming very clear it's a cabal running the country, and we simply bring our friends in to the jobs that are the critical ones, because we know they will do as they're told. Is that what's happening? 
Uh, yes, Brian, and this is because of the rise of the party system, which we have been covering in some detail in the Constitution section of the UK Column website, ukcolumn.org, and then go to Topics and find Constitution. The episodes of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution there set out uh, how this has happened since the late 18th century, that people are tricked into voting for a pre-written manifesto, which is then sold to the people as, well, you lot voted for this package, didn't you? Uh, which is why we must elect independent uh, members of Parliament. Uh, independents can stand up as they used to uh, at the king's speech at the opening of parliament in 1770 to the king's face saying we are going to vote down your majesty what your government proposes to bring in this year because it's unlawful uh, in that particular case as we covered in the dissident's guide to the constitution uh, Pitt the younger was uh, incensed uh, at even one of his political rivals being chucked out of the house of commons in a, a disgraceful uh, act of sabotage of that man's voters uh, john wilkes's voters so there's been a long history of this we will not mend it while we have political parties um, that is uh, quite true. Now let's uh, quickly move on to the next agenda item. We're going to build back fairer. Uh, we're going to improve and increase opportunity. And of course, fairness doesn't mean what people might think it means. It doesn't actually mean improving and increasing opportunity for the masses. It means improving and increasing opportunity for the chosen few. Um, and uh, if you want to find out more about that, have a look at uh, this article from Martin Edwards, published in 2016, In Pursuit of Fairness. Uh, he begins by saying, fairness, everyone is demanding it. Theresa May is basing her shared society on it. Jeremy Corbyn wants a fair society. But what is it and what do they mean when they invoke it? And really what they're talking about is completely changing relationship between us as individuals and the state. We've seen it being implemented over the last year in particular. Uh, but this will give some indication as to the direction that it's going. And it's not a coincidence that uh, green and purple are the colours chosen there because uh, this is very much a common purpose uh, policy agenda here. Um, so uh, then we've got building back stronger. We're going to strengthen all parts of the UK and promote global Britain. But we're going to strengthen all parts of the UK by breaking the UK up uh, and effectively making uh, the various nations of the UK independent uh, states. That's what that means, this breakup of the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, But we're going to promote and protect the strengths of the United Kingdom, building hundreds of years of partnership as the most successful and political successful political and economic union in history. Okay, we're going to build back better, of course, because that's uh, Green New Deal too. Uh, that means jobs and recovery. But of course, this comes back to the whole issue of uh, uh, the, the statements that were being made just prior to the uh, COVID pandemic uh, about net zero. We'll not get to net zero in a niche, said Mark Carney. It requires a whole economy transition. And we're seeing that transition play out uh, right in front of our eyes. Uh, but I thought this was particularly ironic uh, because they produced a nice graphic reforming our rail and bus networks, delivering a better, greener, more reliable service with simpler fares. Well, isn't that ironic, bearing in mind that a large proportion of the UK's uh, high-speed rail network is currently shut down uh, because the new trains that they uh, bought since 2019, built by Hitachi, uh, are being effectively, well, as being described in Real Business UK here, is grounded by cracks, the cracks in the chassis, cracks in the suspension, we had the Intercity 125 uh, trains that ran on this, uh, these lines from the mid-1970s right up to 2019 and didn't have a problem right the way through that time. And here we are uh, 18 months or two years after these Hitachi trains have replaced them uh, and there's, suddenly we don't have a rail network anymore. Well, one of the questions that I'd like to ask is where did the steel come from? Because, of course, the original trains, I would guess, were built with British steel what, where did the steel come from for this contract? And the quality of steel is a very 
interesting discussion point because we had a lead on the quality of steel at one point in the nation's history, and that's clearly no longer the case. Um, we're also going to build back safer because safety is about everything. So we're going to deliver laws to protect the public, support our police and cut crime. This is the police that are increasingly treating the public with aggression, violence, disgraceful behavior. Um, and of course, uh, one of the main laws that they're implementing uh, as a result the, under this head, heading is the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. Now, I think uh, I think we've got to say that if, if we think that the police brutality that we've been seen in recent demonstrations is bad now, uh, when the right to freedom of protest exists, at least theoretically, we've got to imagine what it's going to be like when that right is removed. And that's effectively what one of the things this uh, bill does. Um, I think the problem that we have here Alex, is that uh, this issue, this particular issue of the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill has been effectively co-opted by the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and so a lot of people aren't adding their opposition, their voices to the opposition because they don't want to be associated with, with that movement. This is something I think we've all got to be starting to campaign against. Uh, well, you see, if you don't, you will end up with the, the laboratory Scotland having its model uh, spun out. And as David Scott has been covering uh, with regard to this issue of uh, hate speech, part of the PCCS bill uh, remit, um, England and Wales is not going to see an abolition of the dwelling defence, which is saying things around the dinner table, uh, not being able to land you in court and having your children pressed into testifying against you. That has gone by the wayside now in Scotland, precisely because the bien pensant thought, well, I can't speak against this because it's all about the victims of vile racism. You have got to put principles first, otherwise they'll be coming for you. Uh, that is indeed true. So uh, let's uh, move on. And they're going to strengthen our freedom of speech uh, and academic freedom in our universities. So they're going to strengthen freedom of speech in the universities, but they're going to absolutely shut it down elsewhere. We'll come on to that in one second. But uh, what are they saying here? They're saying that students unions are going to be legally obliged to protect freedom of speech for the first time and could be taken to court by cancelled speakers. Um, these, this uh, law will make it easier for academics, students and visiting speakers to take action against universities and student unions uh, and claim compensation if they're gagged. Um, the move follows instances of no platforming on campuses. Alex, just briefly, what do you think about that? It's tending towards the, the frank admission that universities are privatised campuses. I mean, the, the big uh, driver in the latter half of the 20th century was universities finally becoming finishing schools for for how to behave in polite society, something that was foreseen even back in Thomas Hobbes's day and, and cheered along by such people. Um, the idea of speech codes in universities is now fully embedded in the Anglo-American world and is slowly spreading to the continent here as well. Um, ultimately, people are going to have to vote with their feet. Uh, like with the other professions and whistleblowers that we cover, the, the, the moral cream, the 10%, if you like, of medicine, the law, uh, business is coming out of decrepit professions and have decided to let the system collapse under the weight of its own absurdities and contradictions. But this also requires a, re a restart in academia. And the real pinch point there is going to be accreditation, because after a century or so, we're going to be back in the 19th century quandary. Do we go for state accreditation? Once you've gone, not, gone down that route, it's death. You're signing up to the state, deciding what the young people think. OK, and of course, the biggest uh, issue probably that we face here is the online safety bill. Uh, now, the draft bill, I'm not aware that that's been published in full just yet, but we do have some indication of what's going to be in this. 
it's going to make the UK the safest place in the world to be online. But for whom is the question? Um, and uh, well, we know that Ofcom is going to end up being the regulator of so-called harmful content on the internet. Um, and uh, something new that uh, I discovered today, hadn't heard before, is that one of the powers that they may well have is that any websites or content providers that don't comply with Ofcom's regulation uh, could be blocked by, by ISPs and mobile operators. So effectively, what we're potentially seeing with the online safety bill here uh, is a, a British Chinese Great Wall, a British Great Internet uh, Firewall of China sort of thing, uh, this kind of model. Yeah, so if you don't here. agree with the government, if you're trying to put a, a view critical of the British government, you're simply going to be blocked. That's right. Uh, they're also obviously going to force Facebook and Google to clamp down on what is described as illegal content. And the question is, will the online safety bill define what illegal content is? Um, and it's going to require those platforms to establish a duty of care over users. Uh, again, will that be defined? That remains to be seen. But don't worry, uh, because Will Moy has uh, spoken out. He, of course, is the chief executive of uh, Full Fact, that bastion of factual... Uh, yes. No, sorry. I just, I'd, I'd like to meet this young man, actually, because I wonder whether he is actually as silly as I believe he is. Yes. Uh, a year of conspiracy theories and false health advice has shown the threat bad information poses to all our lives. We cannot go on relying on an internet on internet companies to make decisions on online misinformation about independent without independent scrutiny and transparency. He is setting himself up as being the regulator of the internet. That's what he wants to be. Um, and uh, well, as I said uh, a second ago, Alex, uh, one other thing that we haven't mentioned there, but which. Uh, is of interest is that the Fixed Term Parliaments Act is being repealed. Um, and so uh, it's going to be interesting to see what is in the legislation that they roll forward. Um, Brian said before the programme, does repealing the Fixed Term Parliaments Act means that, uh, mean that we'll have a perpetual parliament and, and no general elections? Well, <laughs> that, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but... Uh, we it's a possibility. It certainly is. Yeah. Alex? Well, everything constitutionally is up for grabs now. As the, the best commentators like S. Williamism were saying, uh, even during the Brexit process, um, the elites behind the uh, parliamentary um, uh, level, the, the cabinet office thinkers, were already saying, hallelujah, we can recodify the constitution as a result of this. We're seeing this, that the bits that get the biggest noise, of course, some deservedly so, are the effective abolition of judicial review, Britain's version of administrative law um, and other components, um, the, 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 the codification of the, 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 the COD doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty invented in the late 19th century. Again, listen to the dissident's guide to the constitution. Uh, these are all uh, up for grabs. And one of these is the, the idea that uh, we're, we're going to have the... Um, the fixed-term parliaments revoked because that that's the older voters will feel like the good old system of the prime minister calling a vote when he feels like it or when the, the nation demands. But you can hide all manner of nasties uh, in the detail. Uh, look for new institutions being created or old remits being left out of institutions as they're recreated. Uh, yes. Now, of course, uh, Alex, uh, one of the issues that's increasingly been raising its head over the last uh, number of couple of years has been the idea of a common narrative. Uh, and of course, we've got a common narrative globally with COVID, a common narrative globally with climate change. But do we have a common narrative with dogs? 
Quite possibly. Uh, the Telegraph here claims to have exclusive knowledge that one of the bills that Her Majesty's Government will present this parliamentary year is to allow animals to have their feelings protected by law in the Queen's speech. For a nation of animal lovers like the British, of course, this is being presented as a spontaneous British conservative idea. But what's this? We see that in Spain, as reported in the often excellent Periódico de Ibiza y Formentera for the Balearic Islands, um, the Spanish Civil Code is being revised to clarify that animals are not goods. And this is happening in the same week, despite Spain having a completely different parliamentary and constitutional timetable. It's not that many years, less than 10 if memory serves, since the Dutch Civil Code had the beginning of Book 3, the Law of Goods, revised to specify in a new article inserted at top level that animals are not goods. Uh, is this a British idea or is it coming out of an agenda somewhere? That's a very good question. I think it's coming out of, out of an agenda somewhere, but um, I smiled. We seem to have the treatment of human beings. They are treated more like goods on a daily basis. And then we see the spin. We're very concerned about animals. But I suppose if your animal has a feeling it wants to bite an MP, uh, maybe we're saying that should be possible. Should be. Possibly. Um, well, let's have a look at the BBC. They became very active within a few hours of the UK column putting up a database um, showing the government's MHRA yellow card data. Um, this article was sent to us by quite a, quite a lot of people. So you clearly picked up. It's by BBC Trending. The volunteers using honeypot groups to fight anti-vax propaganda. And there's a, a placard being held out somewhere with uh, gates to hell. Um, this is what they said in a policy shift. Facebook is now removing groups and pages that discourage people from getting vaccines. The social media giants grapple with the anti-vaccine movement. And this is the key bit. Specialist disinformation reporter Mariana Spring meets the everyday citizens battling conspiracy theories in their spare time. So there we are. We've, we've got everyday citizens. I presume she's not an everyday citizen. Well, she she's, she, she's, the, she's the female equivalent of Will Moy. Yes. Um, but there we are. So let's have a look at her. If you haven't seen, this is her Twitter page. Black mask, I thought was very interesting. And if we wanted to be conspiratorial, just one eye showing. But uh, there she are, a charming young lady, award-winning specialist reporter covering disinformation, social media. And of course, if you haven't looked at her Twitter page, the pin tweet is about her. So she's not that interested in disinformation because she's uh, been given award. Well, she was on the front page of Forbes 30, under 30 Europe list for my work as the BBC specialist disinformation and social media reporter. So she's pinned herself to her Twitter page because she is the most important thing in her world. But uh, what does she have to say? Well, this is one of the images in the article. And we are to believe that two ordinary citizens, Richard and Dave, use this terrible image of Bill Gates uh, and the syringe of poison to lure in people who believe in conspiracy theories. So this is BBC real reporting, which we are supposed to believe. So let's bring in Richard. Here he is. He said he was out of work, so he wanted to do something constructive. And he's run multiple honey, honeypot Facebook groups and that's all been done for fun and unpaid, apparently, Mike. So he's an unemployed builder, but he's also a sort of semi-trained psychologist, which the BBC thinks is an ideal person to be monitoring online truth. 
Uh, he says it was horrible having to lie to begin with. I put in some words, but I soon got over that false morality. But the BBC here promoting somebody who's very happy to say publicly that he lies. He is a liar. It was horrible having to lie to begin with. Inside the group, we let them post false and misleading articles. So that was entrapment going on there as well, Mike. Um, after members joined the group, Dave and myself would observe what they'd shared sometimes for weeks. And then it would stop and we'd start questioning their narrative. We debunk the myths and start questioning their narrative. I mean, like I'm a trained body builder, part-time sort of ordinary BBC psychologist bloke. I had to put that in because this is the reality of the man that's speaking. He's a sort of trained builder, part-time psychologist, according to the BBC. But what qualifies him to debunk any myths? Well, he's a liar, so you can't... He's admitted he's a liar. He said he tells lies. Alex, just before I go on with this, this is really quite extraordinary for the BBC. The BBC now panicking um, as the information on social media becomes of a better and better quality to the extent UK Column is putting out the government's own data on yellow card vaccine adverse reactions. And then within hours, the BBC's concocted this clearly false narrative over members of the public spying on the public. This, this is an operation. Is this 77 Brigade? It'll be GCHQ led. It'll be my old colleagues leading it in the, uh, the JTRIG section, uh, ultimately, which, of course, has had some leaks about it since I left. Uh, one of the first JTRIG officers excitedly flapped around my desk around 2007 and said, uh, Alex, we've finally been given permission to go shaping. That was the first word which they soon discontinued the use of. Uh, we've been given permission to go into groups and uh, set up sock puppet identities. Uh, he said, it's still illegal, but we've been uh, given permission to do it uh, in a kind of bridging manner until it will be legal. This has all come out in uh, in parliamentary inquiry and uh, or committee uh, reports since, not just from whistleblowers. Uh, but the significant thing is in the nearly 15 years since then, uh, having been developed in GCHQ, where officers, I certainly saw split personalities and, and, and moral quandaries as a result, it's now being put into the BBC, uh, as we'll see later in this news, uh, others in the mainstream media are realising that they are now the state, the state's um, uh, disinformation or, or hoovering up arm themselves. Uh, so, yes, the BBC is panicking because they are the last and biggest gun that's been wheeled out. And they, too, are now having to pay catch up to shoestring operations like UK Column, simply because we show up for the battle, I think. Yeah, Alex, thank you for that. Now, you, di you didn't know the question was that I've just put to you was coming. So this is where I, I or this is the next section which I picked out of the BBC's report uh, where they said the problem original research from BBC monitoring has revealed how Facebook pages and groups promoting misleading and false claims about vaccines saw a significant rise in followers in several countries across the globe in the last year. In Ukraine, pages sharing anti-vaccine content grew by 157 percent in 2020 reaching nearly 26,000 page likes, double the rate for the previous year. In Mexico, Brazil and India, similar pages grew by around 50% each in the past year. Um, it, it goes on. I'll just say to you, the moment we see BC, the moment we can see BBC monitoring, we're coming back into the domain that you've just talked about because 
This, of course, is linked in with GCHQ and the security services. So uh, BBC starting to reveal it, bring in a bit more text. It says previous research found a huge spike in followers of English language social media accounts. And um, before I bring in the next one, because I think it'll cover it up in red on screen, you've still got uh, a bullet point which said we showed volunteers an anti-vax video. How did they react? So the BBC showed two 83-year-olds a video, and I'm going to suggest to our audience that if you follow that link through, those individuals, those elderly people, in my opinion, were not capable of making a judgment on what they were actually watching on screen. So they were, they were cynically used by the BBC. But let's bring in the next bit. Although there is some overlap online, our research focused on extreme content accounts and groups spreading false genocide and implanted uh, microchip claims rather than legitimate questions people have about safety and efficacy and stories about rare cases of blood clots. So this, this is completely uh, spreading a false agenda because, of course, there are now a huge number of reports online which are real information about the dangers of vaccines. But let's uh, follow it through. This one was really excellent because uh, somebody, uh, UK Column supporter, has emailed Mariana Spring to say that um, UK Column has designed an excellent tool um, in order to query the government's own data. And uh, that uh, email contained a lot of data um, in it about what we've done, 750,000 reported adverse reactions and over a thousand deaths. So a very calm, measured email to Mariana Spring. Uh, will she react? My take is that she probably won't. So if viewers are not aware of it, if you go to the UK Column website, you can find this big box, which takes you to the MHRA data. It is their data. It's the government's data on adverse reactions. Um, but UK Column has now provided a search engine so that you can have a look through. Hopefully this will run. We put in blood clots, which Mariana Spring dismisses as not worth bothering with. But within the overall list of a number of different issues concerned with blood, not just blood clots, we are seeing that there's some 700 fatalities linked to this. There's two pages of data comes out here, Mike. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the reason that you're getting a mixture of clots and blood is because you didn't put quotes around it. So, so you're getting a search for blood and for clots. Right. But what we can show our audience is the quality, the amount of information that we can pull out of the government's own data. So that was page one. Just about to click on uh, the second page here and you will see it go on. Uh, but our point is that the government is hiding these adverse reactions within their own data. Uh, UK Column has provided the tool for viewers to check it for themselves. Uh, I, think, I think Alex had a quick comment there, Alex. Did you? For those who might not have seen uh, the news when David Scott came in on Monday this week, uh, it was tweeting yellowcard.ukcolumn.org, albeit in a shortened Twitter form of the URL, that got him a seven-day suspension from Twitter. 
so that was that was extremely quick. That happened live uh, on air. So that there is some algorithm geared towards stop UK column version of of yellow card data coming out. And while we're on that, Ms. Spring and her deceits, uh, we know from two separate accounts coming into UK column that she uses deceit herself. Uh, we know of a case where she approached a group uh, of ladies in Brighton meeting in a physical event. And when she was challenged by one of the women, you are Mariana Spring, aren't you? She backed away. We also know of her uh, approaching a social media group using a surname other than her professional surname. We have the screenshots. Um, and uh, again, she was uh, pretending to be someone other than a BBC journalist uh, trying to hoover up data. So uh, in a kind of ham-fisted way, she's doing a bit of spookery herself. Yes. OK. And uh, we've now got a little audio clip which was sent into the column where somebody took the trouble to uh, ring up the NHS to ask about um, giving blood. and were there any particular limitations? Very interesting to hear what the NHS has to say. Hello, and thank you for calling NHS Blood and Transplant. We record calls so that we can continue to provide you with a quality service. Please select from the following options. Option one, if your call is regarding blood donation. You must wait for seven full days from receiving each dose of any COVID-19 vaccine before donating. Coming to give blood is essential travel for the NHS. Please keep donating blood and platelets. For the latest advice about the coronavirus and blood donation, please visit blood.co.uk. Or stay on the line and speak with one of our colleagues. Good afternoon, you're through Suzanne. How can I help today? Oh, hello. Um, I'm phoning up for my friend, actually. She had the COVID vaccination about three weeks ago. Now, she normally gives blood and mm -hmm. she was wondering, can she still give blood if she's had the COVID vaccination? OK, so it has changed. It used to be a clear seven days, but now, did she have any side effects at all? No. She didn't even have a sore arm. Oh, well, she had a little bit of a sore arm, but apart from that, she's fine. Yeah, so we're even classing a sore arm now as a side effect, so she has to wait 28 days from when her arm was better. Oh, okay, so after the 28 days, I think she had it about, yeah, I think it's almost three weeks ago now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 28 days from when her arm started feeling better, then she can donate from. Oh, okay. Yeah, she was just a bit worried about giving blood. You know, how does that affect someone who has not been vaccinated if they have a blood transfusion from her? Is there a problem? Yeah, no, no, it's absolutely fine. That's why now, obviously, we've changed it for to 28 days because, obviously, people are having different side effects. So just to cover all angles from a donor and a receiver, we just wait 28 days to make sure that it's okay for both of them. Okay, that's lovely. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I'll let her know. She was a bit nervous about phoning. That's why I'm phoning for oh, her. No, don't so. worry about it. Oh, that's what we're here for. Tell her. Oh, lovely. Thank you very much then. Thanks for calling. Bye. Bye-bye. So as you can see, if you've had the jacks, you can give blood. And I, for one, will never, ever have a blood transfusion. So that's it. Just thought I'd let you all know. Bye. 
So very interesting to pick up there that, um, that any reaction is listed as a side effect. So therefore, you would have thought that all of the NHS and all of the vaccinating staff would ensure that that information was logged. But we know from first-hand accounts that that's absolutely not the case. And of course, the MHR, MHRA is not investigating the adverse reactions that are logged. Alex? In extra time for logged in members, and uh, the usual reminder, it's ukcolumn.org slash community, and then you can log in and uh, find it under forums. We're going to be playing a longer similar recording by Clive Mingis or Menzis, who runs outersight.org, uh, a six minute clip in which uh, he asked, or rather was asked by the NHS, have you had your jab yet? And this also went in interesting legal directions. Yes. OK, well, I'm just going to bring in, in fact, it was the beginning of the original email uh, that the gentleman had sent in to Mariana Spring, um, because what I wanted to bring up on screen now was the fact that he put a link into a report of a man losing his leg. Uh, this is the uh, Rutland and Stanford Mercury showing this uh, gentleman, a martial arts uh, expert, um, and uh, he has the jab, he loses his leg. So the reports are that Dave's flu-like symptoms started within hours of having the AstraZeneca vaccination against COVID-19 on March the 4th. His symptoms got progressively worse over the following month. Then the key bit, medics haven't confirmed the cause of the infection, but Dave fears it was linked to the vaccine. He said it started with a horrendous fever. I was admitted to hospital on the 10th and on the 12th, my foot just exploded. There was blood everywhere. So what the man is telling us, of course, is that his case has not been fully examined, or at least at the time of that report. And this is the key issue, that the MHRA, which says it is there in a safety role for the general public, is simply not investigating its own adverse reports that it's received. So we decided we'd get back to the lovely uh, Mariana Spring. Uh, this was the photo that she, was, uh, pinned, she had pinned to her uh, Twitter page. And uh, I said that she looked radiant in her picture, but I did wonder if she was investigating the real news being reported uh, by the MHRA. And I gave her the uh, stats. So those are not UK column stats. Those are stats from MHRA. Um, will she reply to us? I rather doubt it. Uh, well, uh, good news, Brian. Uh, last night was the Brit Awards, and apparently it was a massive success uh, because, of course, uh, this was part of the events research program uh, no social distancing, no masks, thousands of people there. Um, it's uh, a prerequisite to uh, they, they vaccine were, immunity passports. They were all over each other, Mike. If you yes. see the video clips, they, they were leaning on each other, hugging, kissing, um, possibly a bit of groping going on. So uh, it was quite a, quite a research program. Uh, yes. So being presented, of course, in the media as being uh, a very positive development, we're getting our freedoms back. But are we? Well, we have to wait and see. Uh, in the meantime, I thought this was interesting. Uh, somebody sent me uh, the coronavirus COVID-19 antibody testing page from the government website, which uh, and it was quite a timely uh, email. Um, I just want to take a little quote out of this um, because uh, this is what it says. Vaccines teach your immune system how to create antibodies, but the antibodies developed after vaccination are different to the ones the antibody tests check for um, to tell you if, you're, if you've had a, the virus before. If you've had the vaccine, you may be asked to take a different test to check your response to it. So 
what they're saying there is that if you're uh, taking part in the coronavirus antibody testing uh, program, uh, that the antibodies that would have been developed following a vaccine are not the same as the ones that you normally get. Um, so uh, this leads us on to this article from the National Institute for Health, uh, lasting immunity found after recovery from COVID-19. Uh, and they're saying the immune system of more than 95% of people who recovered from COVID-19 had uh, durable uh, memories of the virus up to eight months after infection. Now, this shouldn't really come as any surprise, but if you've been watching the UK column news in any case, but nonetheless here it goes on to say, the results provide hope that people uh, receiving SARS-CoV-2 vaccines will develop similar lasting immune memories. Uh, but of course, we already have immune memories. There's copious scientific uh, papers. Uh, they've been running for quite a long time now. I think it was May was the earliest one that we reported last year. Uh, T-cells found in COVID-19 patients bode well for long-term immunity. Uh, is, here's another one. Targets of T-cell responses to SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus in humans with COVID-19 disease in unexposed individuals. And this was the key quote. Uh, we've reported this before. Importantly, we detected SARS-CoV-2 reactive CD4 T-cells in 40 to 60% of unexposed individuals. So they'd never been exposed to SARS-CoV-2, but the T-cells reacted to SARS-CoV-2. This suggests cross-reactive T-cell recognition between circulating common cold coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2. This is even acknowledged by uh, Sarah Gilbert, who was in charge of the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca uh, vaccine development program. It's possible that we're underestimating the natural or, or already acquired immunity to this virus. There's certainly evidence that people have not developed uh, antibodies but have developed a T-cell response. Also from Oxford, uh, Sir John Bell saying, so there's probably background T-cell immunity in people before they see the coronavirus. Now he does acknowledge that uh, once you get a bit older, uh, your T-cells get a bit tired and perhaps you're not able to fight off the vaccine. Uh, as uh, you might otherwise do. So we're going to ask this question once again, because it's important. If all this is true, then what effect does a vaccine-derived specific immune response have on uh, general immune responses uh, that are already there in people? Um, I think uh, that is a very important question and needs to be asked a lot more. Uh, and as, this government, as the government uh, website showed in the first uh, graphic there, uh, they are acknowledging that the response from the vaccine, the vaccine-derived response, is different. But nobody is investigating it. This is the key point, isn't it? The government is simply ignoring it when experts put this view across. Yes. Um, conservative woman is... Uh... Well, I, I think we've got to say conservative woman is doing an excellent job. This is an article that several of our viewers picked up on, and I think it's worthy of putting on screen. So it's revealed how Bill Gates' influence spreads um, virally into UK public health policy. Um, and it's saying it, that their reach extends right into the heart of the British medical and science establishment. It's been funding British companies, charities, universities, and public bodies for almost 25 years. Their influence works through the many interconnections that exist between certain private and public funding bodies. This is a very detailed article. Encourage people to go and look at it. And it's, it's obviously going to be a series because there is so much detail for conservative women to get across here. So um, excellent uh, article. Go and have a read of it. 
But of course, who else is talking about Bill Gates? Well, it's none other than The Guardian. Melinda Gates apparently began, began divorce moves at the time Bill was having meetings with um, Jeffrey Epstein. No, no, it was whenever the meetings that it had taken place, whenever that became public knowledge, that's when she began the, the divorce. Uh, well, we took it, we're, we've got a number of things here. Going back in two, uh, 2013, she was expressing con Concern. concerns. Right. Yeah, so she's um, said to have expressed unease at Bill's relationship with Epstein since at least 2013. Her meeting with divorce lawyers in October uh, 2019 is said to have taken place at roughly the same time as New York Times article detailed Bill's meetings with Epstein, which included an overnight stay at Epstein's New York mansion. So this is starting to put some interesting flesh on the bones of what's going on here. Is it in the public um, interest? This, I think very much so. Melinda has recently introduced a maiden name of French into her social media profiles apparently warned her husband about associating with Epstein in 2013. Uh, meanwhile, Bill Gates says that he met Epstein. He didn't have any business relationship or friendship with him. He didn't go to New Mexico or Florida or Palm Beach or any of that. Uh, there were people around Bill Gates apparently who were saying, hey, if you want to raise money for global health and get more philanthropy, he knows, Epstein knows a lot of rich people. Alex, um, is this a bit of the me? <laughs> he thinks he does protest too much. He seems to be putting a lot on the table before anybody's mentioned any of this. Yes, uh, I'm put in mind of two Bill Clinton protestations from the 1990s during the Monica Lewinsky affair. I did not have relations with that woman and uh, asked about pot smoking. I did not inhale while I was at Oxford. So uh, th th there's a bit too much of, you know, leading the question before it's been asked, as you suggest. Yeah, well, he's he's reassuring us, though, because apparently every meeting uh, where, if we put this yeah. one on, every meeting uh, where I was with him, Epstein, were meetings with men. I, I was never at any parties or anything like that. He never donated any money to anything that I know about. But he's previously said that he was sent to him because he was a man who was giving out cash to all and sundry, but he, he never donated to no. Bill Gates, of course. And then he said, unlike many others, uh, well, sorry, this is the report around it. Unlike many others, Mr. Gates started the relationship off after Mr. Epstein was convicted of sex crimes. So this is a little bit like Prince Andrew, of course, uh, but we're moving across to Mr. Gates. And I thought at this point, uh, Mike, we should go back to October 2020 uh, when you had picked up on a mail article where Tobias Elwood was singing the praises of um, Bill Gates. There's been an impressive level of information sharing around the world and credit must go to Microsoft billionaire Bill Gates and his efforts to promote fair manufacture and distribution when finally a vaccine emerges. So clearly no due diligence done on Mr. Gates at all, but uh, Tobias there is, well, he's the man for the job, isn't yes. he, really? Uh, he said, so far as my recent speech in Parliament, uh, let's get COVID policy and lockdown of UK under the control of the military. Uh, well, that's what, he, that's what Tobias was pushing. And of course, you added in there with the help of billionaire Bill Gates, uh, Mike, which was uh, quite appropriate. Um, but of course, uh, we've also had press releases, this is going back to the 19th of May, um, where the British government is boasting of its, 
its um, calls, video calls, to discuss this policy with Bill and Melinda Gates. So uh, go and have a look at that report, which is on the gov.uk website, um, because they discussed the UK's contribution to helping countries around the world tackle coronavirus. But was Bill Gates really the quality of man that the prime minister should have been speaking to? I think there's quite a few questions to be asked. And it's interesting that all the, although the Guardian has um, printed a bit on this, uh, it, it's taken Russia today to really ask the key questions. Bojo hosts Bill Gates and pharma bigwigs to plot COVID-19 vaccine development as UK military preps for biggest efforts since World War II. So that's uh, really telling it as it is. And in that Russia Today article, uh, we've got this, no peasants, please. Bojo's loving with Bill Gates on Twitter shows just how broken UK democracy really is. Well, got to say Russia Today, spot on with that comment. And uh, round up the anti-vaxxers, enlist religious leaders. Bill Gates warns the US needs to brainstorm ways to reduce vaccine hesitancy. Uh, Alex, just back to you very briefly. I get a very uneasy feeling when I see Mr. Gates's uh, face on screen. This man, obscenely wealthy. If he'd wanted to help the world, he could have done uh, a lot of very different work to help people who couldn't feed themselves or even have those that have access to, no access to uh, fresh water. Uh, but it's simply his wealth that seems to give him access to number 10 Downing Street. This is the kind of thing that the Northcote Trevelyan reforms of the civil service in the early Victorian era put a stop to until a century and a half later uh, under Blair, but it wasn't really party political, it was the whole cabal, uh, the system of sofa government or kitchen cabinet government was brought in. The permanence of that revolution is well illustrated uh, by the consideration that it's now a supposedly conservative government following the same agenda of sidestepping any specialist civil service research that might be done into the suitability of moneybags people uh, to have uh, sofa time or, or uh, WhatsApp time with ministers. That's all put aside and ministers have their own judgment, uh, but they're not acting on their own judgment anywhere than any more than they were uh, during the civil service dominated uh, era. They're now being told what to do by layers above and beyond the nation, uh, Bilderberg and the like. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, thanks to Ian Davis for this. Um, and uh, do have a look at Ian Davis's uh, work on the UK column and also at InThisTogether.com. But uh, SpyMO, this of course is the uh, Sages modelling group. Uh, they've been basically driving the uh, lockdown policy. And of course, as we come out of, or as we are coming out of lockdown, according to the government, uh, it's all on the basis of R, uh, this uh, number which shows uh, the infection rates. Um, and this has been the narrative that's been driven from the beginning. We've got to keep R below one. If R is above one, then we've got a lockdown. If R comes below one, uh, then that we're in a better position. Um, so uh, they say their best estimates for R in England and Northern Ireland are between 0.7 and one. For Scotland and Wales, R is estimated between 0.8 and 1 and 0.7 and 1.2 respectively. However, 0.2 says SPYMO is not confident that R is currently below 1 in most NHS England regions. Now, this uh, is published in April, 14th of April. Um, even then, in Plymouth and the Southwest, there were no COVID deaths at that time. R was clearly uh, well down, and as, as a result, there were very few hospitalizations and almost none, and in the Southwest, no deaths. Uh, but this is uh, the key point. Point three, estimates of R and growth rates 
are becoming less reliable and less useful in determining the state of the epidemic as hospitalizations and deaths reach new levels. But they also say uh, in part four, uh, they say SPIMO estimates there are between 4,000 and 8,000 new infections per day in England. Okay, and in point eight, they predict a continuing decline in the growth rate. So I didn't put the numbers up, but they've got a table with the numbers uh, sh showing that they predict a decline in growth rate of infections. Um, but they're not confident about these figures because of the low numbers of hospitalizations and deaths. Um, so what they seem to be saying, uh, well, let's move on to point 15. Well, they repeat their earlier point from point three, estimates of R and growth rates are becoming less reliable and less useful. Uh, so they seem to be admitting, and they're gonna have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is our interpretation of it. They are admitting that the testing system, uh, the PCR testing system, to uh, which is used to calculate the R number, is completely divorced from mortality and hospitalization. Um, it's therefore meaningless, uh, particularly when hospitalizations and uh, uh, mortality figures are low, but it's meaningless in any case. There is an acknowledgement here in this document that PCR testing isn't worth the paper it's written on, um, even though they and SAGE in general have been using um, in, uh, PCR test results uh, to calculate R and therefore decide on the lockdown policy. So this is quite an admission from SPY-MO if this interpretation is correct. And we believe it is correct. And I think uh, we'd like to understand better from them uh, a clarification of exactly what they're saying. And, and we'd also expect to see media sources like the BBC absolutely challenging SPY-MO about what it's saying here. Which is exactly uh, what should be going on. Um, so Alex, um, Sticking with PCR, uh, what's been going on in Germany? Germany is central to the PCR test because on New Year's Day, uh, Professor Christian Drosten uh, of the uh, La Charité Hospital in Berlin um, entirely digitally and without samples cobbled together the basis of what would be the PCR test for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, of course, the inventor of the uh, PCR test had recently passed away after explosively and repeatedly claiming that it, uh, it wasn't uh, fit to be used uh, for diagnosis, only for uh, confirming a strain already suspected by a doctor. Uh, so that has been something that has been hammered by uh, the uh, committee uh, around Dr. Rainer Fulmich, a legal doctor, um, the Stiftung Corona Ausschuss. They continue to hold their Friday hearings. And uh, as they have made a point in every jurisdiction around the world of going to the base of the issue and turning up uh, where they can, experts to testify in court that the PCR test is not fit for purpose and the Drosten one is not fit. By the way, they've already indicted Drosten in Germany, it would seem. Um, this is a hearing that they held last Friday with a South African uh, te testator or, or uh, sorry, witness, uh, Pastor John Mosipele of Creation Ministries in Velkom in the Free State. And I think we'll be listening now uh, to a couple of minutes of what Pastor Mosipele said to Dr. Filmich about South African efforts uh, to get challenges to the PCR system or PCR test uh, for COVID uses into courts in South Africa. Did I think I sent you, or Corvin may have sent you, the expert opinions, which are all included in this one decision made by the court, by the family court in Weimar. If you don't have it yet, we will send it to you right after this session. Plus, I will put you in touch with all of the major experts 
so that you can move very fast because we understand we understand that South Africa and probably the entire continent of Africa is going to be key to what is going on. I think it's going to be key to what is going on because unlike in any other country where the churches are a complete disaster, in South Africa, the churches are still, are still capable of talking to the people and giving them the real information. That, that, that is the positive not only in South Africa but also in Africa. Yeah, we have we, we we have majority of the white churches, and you know your mainstream churches, you know, agreeing with government, turning churches into yeah. vaccination centers, training for vaccinations. But those who agree with us are more than those with them. So we need to move quickly with proof and go before the courts. Like I said, challenging regulations is a waste of time. They yeah. keep changing them. Yeah. We have yeah. to go to the core of yeah. the issues. We have to attack the real issues. Where is corona? Okay. Why okay. the PCR testing? Yeah. What is in the vaccines? What yeah. are the contents of the vaccines that you are vaccinating? Because we are told that it's not even a vaccination against corona, it's trials. Yeah. So we want to to take them to court to explain what are, why are they vaccinating people? Is it for prevention or they are still trying? We want those things to be spoken under oath in the highest court in the country so that they can be held responsible. When they make their press conferences and announces these things, the journalists are not challenging them. They get away with that. So we want to take them before the high court so that they answer these things in the courts. So uh, a lot of points coming out of that. Uh, people in the chat box are already asking, where can I follow Dr. Filmich and his Stiftung Corona Ausschuss? Well, 2020news.de is their allied media platform and is the best English language uh, platform to follow them. Here is a German report on uh, uh, a similar development, uh, which is the, the, um, uh, not the, court, the, the court in Karlsruhe, not the German Supreme Court, but in the same city, uh, an Oberlandsgericht, so um, and a, a middle-ranking court, has uh, thrown out the lawfulness of the order uh, by which uh, Christian Detmar, uh, the family court judge in Weimar, referred to, uh, had his house and car and phone searched and seized last week. And uh, they poignantly note that on May Day, all over Germany, but particularly in the, the city that uh, Detmar, the judge, worked, in Weimar, people were leaving white roses uh, on the doorsteps of courthouses, something I know that is of interest to, to Brian for its uh, symbolic value. More generally, people are coming at us from all angles saying, what about Dr. Filmich? Where can I follow his material? He and his team are at uh, full whack and they don't have the resources to translate and interpret everything into English. Efforts are underway. Uh, Without any sense of selfishness, I would say depend upon UK column, not exclusively, but largely to follow this, because there are contradictory reports coming out of Canada, Australia and other countries as to whether uh, certain legal moves have been uh, done by the Fulmich team or not. Uh, we have to take time to sift these things 
sometimes and read judgments. We will not report something, even if other channels are buzzing about it, if we're not personally sure about it. So we promise that we will stay on the case in the in the widest possible sense of uh, covering uh, Fumich and uh, similar Corona Ausschuss uh, developments. Okay, and that takes us to uh, Dr. Laurie. It does. Uh, for details, again, the Conservative Woman has covered this. But uh, first of all, I'll talk about the, uh, the, the the speech itself. Tess Laurie is a South African lady, an obstetrician and gynaecologist, who on the channel EBMC Limited um, gave um, by Zoom uh, the closing speech to Britain's first conference on the use of ivermectin as a therapeutic to treat COVID-19 cases, uh, something, of course, which has been deliberately faded away from uh, talking points in science and the media since the rise of the jabbing agenda. And Dr. Laurie's credentials from LinkedIn are on screen. She came to the United Kingdom mid-career, having been a registr registrar in OBS and Gynae first, and she's ended up, as you see on the right-hand side, if you tap again, coming to the west of England and being an honorary clinical fellow at the Royal United Hospital in Bath Spa. Uh, so this uh, conference on ivermectin, which of course seems to have made all the difference in India's COVID cases before that policy was covered up and reversed, uh, had this closing address by Dr. Tess Laurie. We're going to listen to just a minute. Uh, and again, in the next slide, we'll show details of where you can find out what she said and listen to it and read a transcript. But first, here is the key section in her address to doctors to remember the Hippocratic Oath. I caution against the unquestioning acceptance of data provided by the developers of novel treatments and strongly suggest these need independent evaluation. Not by academics and institutions receiving unlimited research grants and funding from the pharmaceutical industry and their associated fund companies and charities, but by independent objective scientists with no conflicts of interest. It is time we recognize and scrutinize the involvement of industry and institutions once known for their scientific integrity and all the so-called public-private partnerships and charitable foundations that have facilitated the corruption of science and our honorable profession healing. They who design the trials and control the data also control the outcome. So this system and focus of industry, industry-led trials needs to be put to an end. So she's getting quite emotional there, Alex. She most certainly is. And if people want to see the wider context of her eight minute remarks, again, conservative women and in a no lesser person than their editor, Kathy Gingle, have produced a transcript. So that's on conservative women's website, a doctor's plea to doctors. Remember our Hippocratic Oath. The closing section of her remarks is on screen and says that the story of ivermectin highlights all that's wrong. And as you can see on the slides just on screen at the moment, she is like people in similarly affected professions, um, which is all of society now, suggesting that we need a completely new regulatory framework, one controlled by professionals again, not by special interest. She's suggesting that a new World Health Organization is required. I yeah. think, well, certainly a replacement for what's there at the moment. Okay. and. Uh... Uh, well, you're going to have to translate this one. Back to the Balearic Islands. The Periodico de Vita y Formentera is reporting that hoteliers are, uh, through their uh, industry organization, pressurizing the Spanish and local government uh, to be able to bulk, uh, to batch buy 
uh, or bulk by um, COVID-19 treatments, so-called vaccines, uh, to administer in tourist venues. So they want to be able to buy and administer the jabs or have them administered. We don't know quite whether they intend to do it themselves or by, by bringing in medical persons in hotels. So the, the closing section of the report uh, talks about how uh, they are uh, aware of um, you know, sharp practices in buying up batches. And at the, at the very least, uh, you can see at the end of the paragraph, what they're wanting to do is to deliver uh, COVID-19 injections within tourist establishments. Their economic motive, of course, is that a hard sell to the British and other Northern European nationalities to keep these Spanish hoteliers in business would be come along and get your jab while on holiday. Uh, so a very worrying development, obviously. Um, over in the Far East, uh, something rather similar about the uh, the, the uh, merry abandon with which uh, jabbing is being uh, promoted by people outside the medical profession. One of the U.S. military's um, semi-in-house uh, publications, Stars and Stripes, reporting on Japan. First of all, it's uh, to its award its own citizens extending a COVID-19 emergency, uh, although much less repressive than most countries. And in the middle of it, we read what's happening in one of the U.S. Navy's bases in Japan, naval air facility Atsugi near Tokyo, base commander Captain uh, Manning Montagnier said in a Facebook video address to his troops, please, please, please go get the vaccine. If you get the vaccine, you won't get sick. You may experience a little bit of discomfort for a day or two, but that's all that will happen to you. And more of the quote is on screen there. So um, pretty irresponsible. Staying with the United States, the Center for Public Interest Communications at the University of Florida was commissioned uh, ultimately uh, or of co-funding with the United Nations Verified Initiative to produce this uh, easily findable PDF, A Guide to COVID-19 Vaccine Communications, A Practitioner's Guide to the Principles of COVID-19 Vaccine Communications. Now, where the previous uh, was an example of a U.S. naval commander going completely uh, trigger happy uh, with recommending jabs and promising that you won't get sick from them. Uh, this is the other end of the scale. So this is a Texas uh, State University professor, if you tap again, um, giving a key quote that many people have noticed in the middle of this guide. This is how to persuade people with objections and reservations to take the jabs. And she says, this is Emily Brunson, PhD, Associate Professor of Anthropology, notably enough, at Texas State, Quote, I think we need to avoid the trap of thinking that information or knowledge is enough, that is to tackle so-called vaccine hesitancy and vaccine apathy. Because for a lot of the people, and when you look at hesitancy and parental vaccine hesitancy in the United States, the group who's most likely to purposefully choose not to vaccinate are highly educated. In speaking with them, Dr. Brunson says, these are people who have read the primary literature themselves and they are correctly interpreting it. So it is not a misunderstanding. Dr. Brunson concludes they, those who don't want jabs for themselves or their children, have other concerns that go beyond the traditional public health message of this is what you should be doing. Enter, of course, coercive applied behavioral psychology, you might say. Yeah, yeah, indeed. OK, if you like what the UK column does and if you'd like to support us, please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to join us there. You'd be very welcome and that would be much appreciated, but also share uh, our material on the various platforms where they're still available to us. Uh, and uh, Alex, uh, thank you uh, from Mary and Mikey. Yes, the um, uh, mother and son whom we have been helping uh, have put a thank you up in the blogs section, lower down the main page on ukcolumn.org. Uh, and she says, I thank all those who are supporting me and my son Mikey and are giving kindly and generously. 
I'm especially moved by the lovely messages. They convey love of others and love of freedom. I thank all those who are packing and doing heavy lifting and those who are managing the fundraising. I thank the Solid UK Column team for the immediate initiative taken after hearing about our situation. We have been fortunate on this exhausting journey. Many friends are saying the same prayer. I worry about each and every one of you because I can see what is occurring and I can see what is coming. I wish you all health, freedom, love, a merciful life. You are all warriors now and your goal is noble. I trust humanity will achieve whatever is expected. Embrace your fellow warriors and your opponents. Yes, embrace your opponents too. They just lack the empathy that you all have. There is still time to share love and light with them. Signed, Mary. And the fundraiser in question, uh, which is linked through, of course, from that blog, is uh, Just Giving's blog, uh, hosted there by Thomas. And as of this morning, it was very close to reaching the goal of getting the possessions, particularly Mikey, her son's toys, over to the continent. So a spectacular success. Well done to all those who have participated. And you can see, by helping these beautiful souls, we have got so much back, uh, more than we we gave in effort. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, uh... An advertisement, I suppose, for a section of the front page of the website that goes, that's missed often. Uh, these are stories that we're watching. This is stuff that's going on in th on other people's websites that we think uh, uh, we'd like to show you. And uh, you, you've posted a few extras here, Alex. I didn't dare put in more than Mike ate because by doing this many, uh, I bumped off everything you had put there. But uh, people who are sending us stuff that doesn't go anywhere uh, because of shortage of time and effort might be glad to know that some of the really uh, convincing links and the best write-ups we can find of a particular topic are going here. Keep watching this stage, this page, this part of the page as part of your daily fix of ukcolumn.org stories we're watching. We have a mixture of things there, as you can see. Robert Stewart gives us an update on the BBC's Saving Serious Children nightmare pseudo documentary uh, we have child sexual abuse uh, reports uh, we have the times of india noticing things about deaths after covid-19 jabs we have a very re uh, much reported piece from the salk institute obviously uh, high up in the in the studies of vaccines around the world admitting that covid-19 is a primarily vascular disease and confirming what dr sukarit bakti and dr mike yeden in particular have been saying um, about on the one hand the the hushing up of the t cell uh, immunity uh, pathway and uh, uh, secondarily that it is the spike protein itself which is the problem even if you as this report uh, points out even if you decouple it from the COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine itself the spike protein itself is enough to rip you up in, in layman's terms rip your arteries to shreds and that is of course the nonsense behind uh, immunizing people with spike proteins that is uh, why so many top doctors are convinced now that it is it is a death trap. Uh, absolutely. And that uh, reinforces uh, Dr. Mike Williams' article, which is just further on up the page there. And if you haven't read that one yet, please do so. And Alex, uh, a really fantastic article uh, published anonymously uh, today. Um, whistleblower newspaper industry chiefs criminally negligent over COVID scaremongering. Uh, someone who's worked a quarter of a century in Britain's previously great and varied newspaper journalism uh, industry uh, talks in detail about this with specific reference to trying to get his colleagues, including some of the best sleuths in, the, in his journalistic circle, 
to look at whether the PCR test as applied to COVID-19 is fit for purpose. None of them has heard anything to the contrary because they all live in the media bubble. Uh, it was said some years ago that the academic mind is above all things inordinately aware of other academic minds. And sadly, this is a what the French would call a professional deformation characteristic of journalism and the media industry as well. Uh, people, and we, we are not excluded from this, when you're uh, a narrative uh, reflector and creator, uh, and we hope we're more reflectors than creators, but you know that others create. Um, what you're really inordinately interested in all day is what others are saying about things. And this has had the deflecting effect upon newspaper editors that, like intelligence people and anyone involved in the wider sense of public service, they cannot brook the thought of anything that doesn't resonate with their own opinions because they believe that these opinions are facts accepted by all but the, uh, the, the, the criminally insane. Uh, so it's a very good uh, piece on that. And as with previous NHS board level whistleblowers that we've had, uh, shows that UKColumn.org is the one-stop shop for serious professional whistleblowers, uh, those who are so morally aware uh, that they are realising that they have to step out of their entire industries now. Um, so please do read that and share it. And share it. And, and we'll say we still have a number of uh, whistleblowing reports to get out. We're working very hard to do that. Now, thank you very much for the person who sent this email in. It's uh, showing a bit of the MHRA's uh, website where they say that staff are working remotely and no longer have access to the MHRA building since the 23rd of March 2020 due to the pandemic. This is the key bit. I think we might be able to blow this up on screen. Please note that once the MHRA regains access to its building, we will process any paper suspected side effects reported to the yellow card scheme. If you have sent a side effect yellow card after the 17th of March 2020, and you haven't received an acknowledgement of your report, you may wish to resubmit your suspected side effects electronically. That's something deeply worrying there, that reports which could be of very serious vaccine side effects, albeit um, submitted on paper, they're just gonna sit there until they get back in the building. We will certainly do a bit more research to find out what's happening with the MHRA. Let's bring in this email. Um, we were told that Aberdeen Royal Infirmary on a certain day last week had one COVID patient and that it had, quote, loads of vaccine adverse reaction patients. We were told by our friend currently working in the hospital. Now, technically, this is hearsay, but this is the sort of information that's flooding into the UK column now. And we know that hospitals in Cornwall, as one example, absolutely swamped, no beds available. Uh, ambulances, um, it's reported 15 ambulances at one stage outside with patients with no beds. And we were not able to discover what was wrong with all the people flooding into the hospitals. But we did know because they were happy to tell us it wasn't COVID. So we're beginning to ask the question, is it vaccine adverse reaction patients that are now flooding into the hospitals and we'd like to know more from suitably qualified professionals. And uh, somebody picked out this one, which is just incredible because uh, the NHS is now being broken down. It's very clear for that to see, uh, but it's saying become an NHS hero, study at home, save the NHS, protect lives. So you can have a career in nursing by distance learning. You don't need to get near a human being, apparently, according to this advert. And uh, Alex, I'm just going to point it out that this doesn't look like a, a true angel to me. I think this might be a fallen angel in the uh, blue wrap and head 
and mask. We'll just leave it as a casual comment. And uh, well, that's a bit more of it there. You can go on that link, distant, distancelearningcenter.com if you want to find out the detail of that one. Now, just to uh, prove what I'm saying about hospitals in Cornwall, this is a little bit of a spotlight report, principally bemoaning the fact that we're not going to be allowed to travel to France and Spain, uh, but Brittany Ferry's trying very hard to get a, uh, a route running to Portugal. That was the main bit of the report, but listen to what come ne comes next. And Brittany Ferry's telling us this afternoon they are still hopeful that France and Spain might make it onto the green list when it's next reviewed uh, in early June. But then if France, Spain and Greece don't get added to the green list from 7th of June, the NHS in Cornwall is bracing itself for the busiest summer ever. Yes, indeed. The NHS in Cornwall launching a new campaign reminding people to only go to A&E in cases of genuine medical emergencies. And this comes as the NHS in Cornwall prepares for what it says could be 210,000 visitors a day this summer. Uh, and that staycation pressure, of course, very much depends on what happens with international travel, how many countries make it onto the green list. And the staycation pressure comes on top of a growing demand from the resident population. In Devon last month, we were hearing uh, about a huge surge in the number of people turning up at uh, the A&E departments here in Devon, uh, up to 800 a day, uh, around double the figures being seen the same time last year. And doctors in Cornwall uh, trying to strike that balance between making us aware of the pressure they're under but not putting off people who genuinely need to be in accident and emergency. Your child, your loved one um, is a top priority and they are to us as well. And so if they are acutely ill, we still want to see you. But um, if there's lots of people at the hospital, there will be increased waiting times. Um, what we've done so far is we've put some extra people on staff for sort of the acute bank holiday weekends when we know we're gonna be busy. Um, and we've been asked to fill some extra shifts in for the summer months as well. One of the tips being given to holidaymakers this summer is that they could call on the services of their own GP because, of course, the rise of the remote consultation makes it possible to get help from your own doctor no matter where you are on holiday. Ben Walden, thank you very much. So that's really great news. We can we can go on somewhere else in the UK and always phone back to our own GP and be ignored. Of course, you again. can't you can't do that, exactly. Mike. So what BBC Spotlight are telling the public here is is grossly misleading because the public cannot see their GPs. They are telling us they're flooding the internet with reports that they cannot see their GPs. And to su suggest you're going to be on holiday and get a Zoom conference with your GP is is ludicrous. But what are the figures? 800 people a day they're talking about here. Why are these people going to A&E? What are the conditions? When we called um, um, NHS Cornwall's Trust a couple of days ago, they couldn't tell us what was wrong with all the people flooding into A&E. And we're going to ask the question again, are these people suffering from vaccine side effects? If there's professionals across the country that know uh, please tell us. Um, Alex, we're well beyond time here, but just uh, to, to finish off, um, Craig Murray uh, has ended up with a prison sentence for uh, his alleged, well, I suppose he's been found guilty of contempt of court. 
So go to the dissenter on Substack for uh, some of the best reporting on this. Uh, the absolute best is Taylor Hudak, H-U-D-A-K, easily found on Twitter, who has made a point of updating the public on the persecution uh, by under legal cover of Craig Murray, our former diplomat in Uzbekistan. And we have more Middle Eastern news actually coming in extra time. Uh, Craig Murray, of course, uh, came to fame first uh, resisting British and American intelligence use of torture in his in that part of the world, the Middle East, and uh, more recently has become one of these thorny dissidents in Scotland. Um, I previously read out uh, his affidavit put into the court considering um, the, the, the matter of whether he had created a, a condition of, of contempt of court, which of course is judges ruling that you will go straight to prison, do not, do not pass go. And, but the dissenter is uh, reporting that the court in this case felt it had no choice but to imprison uh, Craig Murray, that is to, to snip the thread on the sort of Damocles that was hanging over him for some time, uh, because uh, Craig Murray's lawyer, who's also Alex Salmon's lawyer, Ruddy Dunlop, who's, who's uh, the, the, the head of the, uh, the Society of Advocates in Scotland, so the, the most senior trial lawyer uh, in the Scottish jurisdiction, says that a court would normally fine an individual for this alleged uh, 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 offence of, of allowing people to work out who Alex Salmon's offend, uh, accusers were. That's what it boils down to through this so-called jigsaw identification. Um, but the court didn't take that into account. Um, journalist Mark Hurt says that Hurst says that we have a very serious problem in Scotland at the moment uh, with uh, the Crown Office, as David Scott would point out, being an institutionally corrupt prosecuting authority. Of course, it has absolute monopoly powers in Scotland to prosecute or to suspend prosecution. The Scotsman reports the sentencing judge, Lady Dorian, saying that this was at the severe end of the scale, what Craig Murray had supposedly done, and that, the, that his actions, uh, right up what he'd heard in court with very careful um, uh, safeguards to prevent identification of people. These actions supposedly struck at the heart of the fair administration of justice. His previous good character and his age and his health didn't matter to Lady Dorian. Um, I have uh, read out, uh, as I say, on the Eastern Approaches column, uh, channel, um, his testimony on this. Uh, it's, it's pretty obvious uh, that the uh, Scottish state's favoured journalist, Danny Garavelli, gave much more information out than he did about uh, Alex Salmon's uh, accusers, but of course she was uh, a favoured individual. And I have an and finally item. Uh, yeah, well, a couple of and finally items uh, explain this one. I don't know much more about this than that it re re reached me this morning and that some uh, naughty person we couldn't possibly condone had decided to light project on the side of one of London's leading hospitals, St Thomas, the message the medical dictatorship is killing humanity. And if we go back to the Balearics for one final time this episode, where a lot of good news is coming out, or rather we have good viewers, the Periodico de Visa y Formentera has a cartoon uh, saying, uh, and of course for those listening in audio only, this is uh, a vehicle in the tunnel uh, zooming out towards the tunnel mouth which turns out to be a precipitous cliff edge drop and the passenger in the car is shouting to the driver in the tunnel step on the gas we can already see the light at the end of the tunnel yeah yeah very good yeah. okay well, well we will be back in uh, 10 or 15 minutes as quickly as we possibly can on the live stream for extra um, and otherwise 1 p.m as usual on friday yeah um big thank you to audience for joining us wherever you are in the world we really appreciate it and also a huge thank you for the uh, scale and quality of the information that's coming into the UK column now. It, it's really impressive the amount of research that people are doing. And of course, this is the start of turning 
around what is happening is to get the lid off it and uh, clear a lot of people are doing that. We'll leave it there. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye.